Some positive thinkers have the idea that the only way to get people to produce is with positive reinforcement, but using praise is only one of many ways to motivate. We are complicated people and we are nudged along by a host of complicated stimuli. At a seminar, once I've heard a motivational speaker say that there are only two ways to motivate people, either with love or fear. And the only effect of one, he claimed, is love. All of which is a lot of reductionist nonsense. In the first place, we are motivated by many more things than love and fear. And in the second place, fear is one rather effective way to bring out the best in people. Every day of our lives, we do things because we are motivated by fear. We avoid certain kinds of behavior at work to keep from losing our jobs. We drive at certain speeds because we fear the repercussions of doing otherwise. It is folly even to hope for a world where we are not motivated by fear, and it is permissive foolishness to try to create a family where we do not use some punishment, or an office where we do not reprimand employees. We ought to employ the carrot more than the stick, but the stick has its uses. Rule number eight then for bringing out the best in people is employ a mixture of positive and negative reinforcement. John Wooden arrived at UCLA, the basketball team had just ended a 12-13 losing season. He immediately set about building what became the most spectacular record in the collegiate history of the sport. When Wooden retired in 1975, he had coached this UCLA basketball team to 10 national championships in 12 years, a record unapproached by any other coach. He was called the Wizard of Westwood because he could win with tall men and short men. One year, he was, his was the smallest team compared to the competition ever to win a national championship. Two research psychologists, Roland G. Tharp and Ronald Gallimore, studied Wooden's coaching methods in some detail during his 1974-75 season. After watching 15 practice sessions to see how he talked to his players on the floor, they found that in contrast to the techniques advocated by many behavior modifiers, praise was a minor feature of Wooden's teaching methods. Total positive social reinforcements, verbal and nonverbal, constituted only 7% of his total action. Negative statements added up to 14.6%. Wooden scolded twice as much as he rewarded. But the precision of Wooden's negative statements is important to note. The researchers called it scold instruction. That is, he would very often say, don't do it that way, do it this way, while he demonstrated the proper method. Wooden was never punitive or mean. He never used physical punishment, such as lap running, but at times his reproofs could be withering. I've been telling some of you for three years not to wind up when you throw the ball. Pass from the chest! Wooden's example can furnish us with several very specific suggestions about the use of negative reinforcement. Number one, 
be certain that you're teaching them to avoid certain behavior, not to avoid you. Wooden always kept a warm, trusting relationship with his players and often told them that next to his own flesh and blood, they were the closest to him. This made it possible for him to get away with so many corrections and scoldings on the playing floor. If our people go about their work constantly afraid of our wrath, he will not produce well. We will want our children, for instance, to fear the consequences of certain actions rather than fearing us. In an orderly and objective way, we can point out to a child that life is a series of choices and that certain choices bring about certain results. Unsatisfactory grades cause them to lose privileges, and certain behavior gets them restricted. It is an essential lesson for them to learn as early as possible. If you touch the hot burner, you get hurt, and if you turn in a poor report, you get the repercussions. This approach is vastly different from that of the tyrant. Certain leaders are unpredictable hotheads. If you happen to get on the wrong side, you are in trouble. They are vengeful and will do whatever is necessary to get back at you if you disappoint them. On the other hand, good motivators may be tough, but they are always fair, and they have your good and the good of the organization always before them. They do not waste time on vendettas. Number two, follow the undesired behavior with immediate correction. If there is any single fault with traditional punishing, it is that the punishment often follows the behavior by such a long period that it is ineffective in changing the behavior. In fact, some researchers want to distinguish between punishment, which comes after the event, in the case of the law, sometimes years after the event, and negative reinforcement, which comes immediately. Most studies indicate that when we punish people, we only suppress the behavior, and it is effective only when we're there to threaten more punishment. When we're gone and there's no danger of getting caught, the behavior returns. Contrast that with Wooden's technique. He scolded often, but he did it promptly enough that the behavior could change on the spot, and repetitiously, using his gold or reinstruction method, the behavior pattern changed. He was out to shape habits. Establish a way to halt the negative stimulus as soon as the behavior stops. That's number three. Let's say that your child brings home a bad report card. You respond by withdrawing television for a month. A month is a long time and it is even longer until the next report card arrives, so the punishment is not very motivating now. And what happens if a worse report comes next time? Usually we don't say, hmm, punishment isn't working, let's try something else. Instead, we escalate the punishment and this time we crown them longer. If threatening the employee doesn't work, talk their pay. If that doesn't work, suspend them. It becomes a vicious cycle and increasingly effective. Not, as Victor Klein in his book, How to Make Your Child a Winner, says taking the bike or car away for 30 days instead of three is not 10 times more effective. In fact, it's usually counterproductive or even less effective. Why? 
The 3D loss of the bike or car makes your point very powerfully, and it means that in three days you can use the vehicle again as an effective deterrent or lever. If negative reinforcement is necessary, by all means offer a plan for the person to improve the situation. Claire, for instance, was a bright 16-year-old who was about to be expelled for truancy, poor grades, and fighting with her mother. She was threatening to run away, and her mother had taken away all money, the use of the telephone, and dating privileges as punishment, but the situation was only getting worse. Here's the plan that was worked out with the mother and daughter. One note from school each day saying that she attended all classes, earned clear telephone privileges for the day, four notes during the week earned one weekend date, and five earned two dates. The mother was very doubtful at first, but the plan worked beyond belief. The lesson was this, when Claire was punished by loss of privileges, she showed no change until a definite way of earning the privileges back was offered. Number 4. One last suggestion. If negative stimulus control doesn't seem to be working, try shaping the absence of the behavior. That is, give positive reinforcement to anything other than the undesired behavior. Karen Pryor in her book, Don't Shoot the Dog, tells how she used this method to modify her mother's behavior on the telephone. Her mother had been in her youth a fascinating witty woman, but when she became an invalid living in a nursing home, the telephone conversations were usually, and sometimes exclusively, concerned with her problems, pain, loneliness, lack of money. Her complaints would turn to tears and tears to accusations. The exchanges became so unpleasant that Pryor attended to duck the phone calls. Pryor decided that there might be a better way. She began concentrating on her own behavior during the calls, deliberately extinguishing the complaints and tears by saying, ah, and hmm, and well, well. When her mother complained, but not hanging up, then she reinforced anything that was not a complaint, queries about the children, news from the nursing home, discussions of the weather, books, friends, these she responded to with enthusiasm. To Pryor's astonishment, after 20 years of conflict, the proportion of tears and distress to laughter and chatting reversed within two months. The youthful, witty, interested mother returned. Is such shaping manipulative? No more than John Wooden's coaching of his players and no more than the day-by-day methods we all use to influence the behavior of those around us. For all our talk about the merits of love versus punishment, says James Q. Wilson, people are changed by routine interactions in which we convey by word, tone, gesture, and expression, our approval or disapproval of the behavior of others.